I'd like to begin by expressing my personal gratitude to the everyone who's helped make this conference what I believe to be a great success, and particularly those you good friends who came to speak to us. I, I have benefited from listening to you, and I feel rather inadequate standing here now, but I'm very, very grateful. Thank you all for uh, being a part of this. We've been looking at the tulip. You know that the word tulip is a mnemonic device. It's an acronym. An acronym, of course, is a word made up of the first letters or the significant letters of other words and is used to help people teach and remember ideas and refer to things that would take too much breath to refer to without the acronym. There are acronyms we're all familiar with. You remember CETO, the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization? an obligation that we assume that got us involved in a war that most of us regret, NATO, OSHA, NASCAR. One of my favorite acronyms is one that really doesn't exist. Years ago, I was listening to National Public Radio, and this was shortly after Princess Di died. And uh, National Public Radio was in love with Princess Di, as much of the American media and Hollywood were as well. And they were talking about her life and bemoaning her loss and talking about significant contributions that she made to the benefit of humanity. And one of those was a reference to an organization that she was a part of. Now, I was driving while this was going on. And the organization that Princess Di was a member of was the Committee to Ban Landmines. Now, make an acronym of that. It's KABLAM! I almost had to pull off the road because I was laughing. I don't mean to be disrespectful. We've been looking at the uh, tulip, and, and I want to share with you an experience that I had with the tea. I would assume that most of us are here as people who once resisted at least one of the doctrines represented by the tulip, perhaps two, three, four, perhaps even five of them. And we are here probably because at some point we were converted. I have mentioned to the people of this church that, in my opinion, the only way that we really know that we believe the Bible is to be able to remember times when the Bible has forced us to change something about ourselves, a, a belief, a value, some part of our lifestyle, something like that. Now, I don't mean that if you can't remember a time like that, you don't believe the Bible. But I think that some of you understand what I mean when you can remember with great joy times when the Bible did, in fact, force you to change something that you didn't want to change. When I was a young Christian, I grew up in a rather non-doctrinal setting. But I was familiar with what the Reformed people said about election and predestination, which I understand to be two different doctrines, predestination being the larger of the two and election being a part of that. And I despised those doctrines. I didn't just regard them as, oh, that's interesting, I'll think about that someday, but I despised them. And when I think about that, I, I think about the resistance of our native nature to the glory and the will of God expressing itself in me, this resistance to the sovereignty of God in my salvation. Most of my time as a young Christian was spent in circles where I heard very familiar things. I heard God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that each one who believes in him, as if the believing takes the initiative. I heard as many as call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I heard blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I heard about knocking and asking and seeking. And all of these things that I heard over and over and over made it very obvious that we take the initiative in responding to what God put on the table. And as a result of our initiative, then God reaches out and grabs us and makes us his own in mercy. When we left our old denomination, we were once a part of the PCUSA. We started looking for a denomination to belong to. And all of the denominations that we considered were pretty serious about the Westminster Confession. Up to that point, I hadn't had to make up my mind about these doctrines because the denomination we were part of had virtually no standards at all. But looking for a denomination made me realize I had to decide about election and predestination and some of these key reformed ideas. Still resisting them. But I was reading through Ephesians in my devotions at that time. Now, I don't know how I made it safely through the first chapter, but I managed to. But I came to the beginning of the second chapter where Paul says to a Christian people and to me, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And all of a sudden, it hits me. It was like someone earlier, I think it was Steve, referred to a passage in the Bible that was just highlighted for his attention. And this was like that for me. It was like God was saying, you need to think seriously about the implications of this. And as I did, I realized that dead people don't believe anything. They don't call on anyone. They don't ask or seek or knock. They don't hunger or thirst. They just lie there. Unless something happens to make them alive. And then as a result of having been made alive, they begin to believe and to call and to ask and to hunger and to thirst and so forth. And it hit me that these things have to be true. And it's interesting that rather than remembering that time in my life, there was no embarrassment. There was this glorious freedom that came from the recognition that this, this really is true. And that's one time in my life when the Bible absolutely forced me to change something I didn't want to change. And I rejoice in my memory of that. We're looking at the P of the tulip. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Some people refer to it as the doctrine of eternal security. Some people call it the doctrine of assurance. We began this session by reading from one of the most familiar parts of the Bible, the 23rd Psalm. And I call your attention to a couple of things that David said in the midst of that Psalm. He said of God, he restores my soul. Doesn't that sound a little bit like regeneration to you? And then he said, he leads me in paths of righteousness. And doesn't that sound a little bit like sanctification? And then the psalm ends, not with David's expressing a hope of some kind, but a joyful certainty. Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We responded to that reading from the scriptures by standing and singing, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. 
when the morning breaks, eternal, bright, and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and when the roll is called up yonder, I most certainly will be there. And this is the doctrine, and this is the joy of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is a piece of theology that expresses our understanding of the thoroughly divine nature of the salvation that we celebrate in our quiet personal lives and in our worship on the mornings of the Lord's Day. Yesterday, that salvation was purchased on our behalf by God the Son. Today, it is being applied to our hearts and minds and lives by God the Spirit. And tomorrow, beyond the end of time, it will most certainly carry us forever into the glorious presence of God the Father. The scriptures teach us that the repentance that leads to life is granted by God. And that the faith that saves us is not our own doing, Paul said, it is the gift of God. We don't realize this at first, when all of the things that we regarded as precious when we first heard them about Christ were new. Because at that time, it seemed to us, probably because the environment in which we were saved encouraged us to think this, that all of this was a result of something that we heard, something that we considered, something that we responded to. But later on, after we began to see that our response to the gospel was only and certainly prompted by that new life God had already formed in us, did we find peace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In the confidence that the salvation we celebrate is entirely of God in time and in that eternity that transcends time. David was born again, just as we are. There was a time in my Christian life when I would have been shocked to hear anybody say that. Now I say it, I regard it as an absolute necessity. And if he could join us in the worship of our churches, it's easy to imagine David smiling through his tears as he sings with us, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And to imagine him laughing out loud as he sings with us, When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. David said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The doctrine represented by the P in the tulip is certainly, gloriously, joyfully, and necessarily true. When I was a young Christian, it was common to hear young Christians, at least, arguing about doctrine. At that time in my life, I was more a Baptist than anything else, although I didn't call myself that. At that time, we argued with Pentecostals about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and with Wesleyans about that second work of the Holy Spirit they call sanctification. We argued with the Presbyterians about the amount of water God requires for a baptism to be legitimate. We quarreled with the Catholics about Mary and the Pope. And we discussed at great length the relative roles of faith and works in our salvation. But one of the doctrines that we argued about most frequently was what I at the time called the security of the believer. 
Generally speaking, Baptists and Presbyterians were on side of this, one side of this issue and just about everybody else on the other. I don't remember that any of these arguments caused a fracture in Christian friendships. I do remember that these sometimes spirited discussions caused most of us to think more seriously about our own doctrinal convictions, resulted in a better understanding of the positions taken by others, and convinced us that even when people disagree, they are not qualified from being genuine Christians. That was a different age in America. There was a nation in Southeast Asia called Vietnam that most of us had never heard of. President Kennedy had not yet been assassinated. Liberals in our culture hadn't yet gone to Woodstock, and liberals in the church were still gentlemen. In both their public and their private lives, most Americans pretended to be Christians, whether they were or not. And many young Presbyterians and Baptists, Methodists and Lutherans, Catholics, Wesleyans, and Pentecostals were sufficiently trained in the doctrinal and liturgical traditions of their various churches to be able to discuss and sometimes even defend them. And in my opinion, this was a better time in the recent history of the Church of Jesus Christ. It was a time when the Church was healthier than it is in this age of doctrinal neglect and ignorance. At some point between then and now, certain people appeared on the stage of church history. They marched happily, arm in arm, four and five and six abreast, chanting now familiar slogans. They demanded, don't give me theology, just give me Jesus. And they declared that doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. And these folks, with their simplistic bumper sticker creeds, have somehow managed to carry the day. The result is an entire generation of believers who are not only unacquainted with the distinctive distinctions of their denominational heritage, but in some cases even seem confused about the nature and the uniqueness of the Christian religion. In pursuit of Christian unity, we strip the Church of many of those glorious ideas that give identity to Christianity. And in a desperate effort to make the gospel of Jesus Christ palatable to those who by nature find it unpalatable, we've simplified the gospel to a point at which it has lost its form and its power. The Bible calls those of us who would know and please God to set your mind on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. The one we call Lord, quoted as an authority for those who would serve him, the words of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The psalmist described the law of God as perfect, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, and proclaimed a blessing on those who meditate day and night upon that law. David said, one thing have I desired from the Lord, that will I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He pondered the deep mysteries of God. He said, such knowledge is too high for me, I cannot attain it. And yet he continued to stretch his mind out toward the lofty truth God has spread across the pages of his word. Jesus said, 
if you continue in my word. You really are my disciples. To read and contemplate the meaning of the scriptures is the calling of every believer, especially those of us who are called to teach. To come to conclusions about the teaching of the Bible is as natural as the application of human intelligence and curiosity to any other arena of thought. And in our case, those conclusions are called doctrines. We've all known people who use doctrine as the basis for the judgment of others. There are those in the church who regard doctrine as a thing in itself, rather than a lens through which we better see the face and the will of God. And every church, there are those who won't listen, who leap to the opportunity to correct others, and seem incapable of treating those with whom they disagree with love and respect. But these abuses of doctrine don't justify the neglect of doctrine. This conference represents the value that we attach to this vital area of Christian living. Our desire to celebrate certain points of theology with those with whom we, degree, we agree and to negotiate those points with those with whom we might not agree with the expectation that the understanding of all of us will be enhanced by our conversations. The doctrine specifically before us is that of the perseverance of the saints. It's the teaching of scripture that all who are saved in time will certainly dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a doctrine found in the joyful hope of Psalm 23. It's a doctrine expressed by Paul in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians, where he said, We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In the first chapter of his first letter, Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the one we call Lord said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. These are a handful of scriptures. There are many, many more that individually and together support the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now in the wider church, and perhaps even in this one today, there are those who object to the doctrine. And they do it generally with two different kinds of argument. One is a practical sort. They say that the doctrine gives rise to immorality and spiritual laziness. In effect, they say, if you believe that you're carrying in your pocket a get-out-of-hell-free card, then why should you try to curb the appetites of the flesh or labor to practice the disciplines of the Christian life? And in response to that, we say, first of all, that the effects of a doctrine, whether they are real or imagined, have nothing whatsoever to do with the truth of the doctrine itself. Every doctrine is capable of abuse because those to whom it has been revealed and entrusted are sinners. And the fact or the possibility that someone will make once saved always saved, an excuse for sin or religious indolence 
isn't a reflection on the doctrine. It's a reflection on them. But secondly, we respond to this practical objection that it can lead to immorality or spiritual indifference in this way. The reason for living a godly life is not the fear of losing one's status as a redeemed child of God. If the heaviest stick that we church leaders can use to prod the people of God toward the pursuit of righteousness is the threat of the loss of their salvation, then we've come a long way from the truth of God. The reasons for trying to live a life that is useful and developing a character that is pleasing to God. Our first and overwhelming sense of gratitude and obligation to the one who loved us to the extent that his own son bore the suffering our sins require, and secondly, that it is simply the right thing to do. But those who object to the doctrine also raise scriptural arguments. They quote Galatians 5, 4, for example, where Paul said, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And on the surface, that seems to mean that those who have returned to the law after having trusted Christ and the gospel have slipped away from the grasp of God. And that's what fallen from grace means, our good Arminian friends would have us believe. But to fall from grace is not to be lost. It is simply to return to a previous misunderstanding of the means of salvation and resubmit oneself to strenuous efforts to keep the law. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. And the people he was talking to were sincere, earnest, believing Jews who were laboring under this misconception that by keeping the works of the law, they could somehow work their way into the good graces of God. An enormous burden for a person to carry from day to day, an impossible burden for the conscientious. Paul said to the Galatians, who were succumbing once again to this false view of salvation, this false view of the law. The law never advertises itself as a means of salvation. I trust that you're aware of that. But they've fallen away from the freedom of the grace that God offers in Christ. They still belong to him, but they have fallen away from grace. In the sixth chapter of Hebrews, there's a paragraph at the beginning of that chapter that at least at one time, our Arminian friends, I think, had scotch taped to the mirrors uh, before which they shaved every morning. It, it refers to the impossibility of restoring to repentance people who have tasted the good things of God. And again, it seems to refer to people who were genuinely born again and who have fallen away and lost the salvation that they once prized and celebrated. As an aside, if you're familiar with Hebrews 6, and if you aren't, you might want to look at that first paragraph of that chapter. If I were an Arminian, and I thought that's what that paragraph means, it would scare me to death. Because if it is a reference to the possibility of losing salvation, it is also a reference to the impossibility of ever regaining salvation. 
If Hebrews 6, the first paragraph, is about the possible loss of salvation, it also says that there will be no one in heaven who is born again again. Because it is impossible to restore such to repentance, the unknown author says. There's another possibility that you might enjoy considering, at least. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians. Hebrews who recognized that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and found mercy and grace in his hand, and were born again, and gathering together as believers. But if there were people these Jewish Christians were concerned about, it would be their Jewish family members, their Jewish friends, their Jewish neighbors. And there's a possibility that Hebrews was written to a church who was all bound up in the task of evangelism, if that is the most important thing that the church is supposed to do. Every service ended with an invitation. Every board meeting ended with an invitation. Every hymn was an invitation hymn. Every sermon. In that paragraph, the author of Hebrews tells these people that you are engaged in a futile effort to win people who for centuries have known the blessings and the goodness of God. And if they will not believe, if they don't recognize Jesus, your efforts are going to accomplish nothing. But in the meantime, you're stymieing your own growth by this celebration of Christianity 101 over and over and over. And in that paragraph, he says, let's grow up. Let's go on to the higher truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Arminian friends will quote the parable of the soils in Matthew 16. A story about a farmer who went out scattering seed, and the seed fell on four different kinds of soil. You remember, on the first, the hard-packed earth he was walking on. It didn't even take root, but the birds came and snatched it away. In the last, it, it sank roots down, and it produced a great crop for the man who sowed them. In between, we find two kinds of soil that are somewhat discomforting to Calvinists. One is the stony ground, and the other is the thorny ground. And in both cases, we're told that the weed actually sprang up, that there was a sign of life there. But because there was no depth of earth, because the thorns crowded it, it shriveled up and it died. And if I were an Arminian, I would tell you that there's proof that it's possible for people to be really born again, to have the life of God in them, but not to nurture that life, to turn away from its source, and to lose it. In the Bible, we find a number of stories involving people who showed a passing interest in the things of God. One of these is in 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, where we find the familiar story of Elijah on Mount Carmel confronting the prophets of Baal. You know, the, the religious figures we commonly refer to as the false prophets of Baal, as if there were true prophets of Baal. <laughs> On that occasion, and you know the story, I'm not going to, it's a dramatic story, I'd love to tell it, but you know the story. But at the end of that day, the people were so moved by this demonstration that Elijah only on that mountain was a true prophet of the true God that they slaughtered the prophets of Baal. And it seemed to be a great national revival, a time of turning away from idolatry to the one true and living God. But in the next chapter, we find Elijah so discouraged that he flees, goes into a cave, 
and bemoans his apparent isolation. Whatever happened on Mount Carmel was a fleeting phenomenon. And very soon, the Baal worship was restored and the people turned away and nothing real happened on that day. The last paragraph of John 2 is an instructive paragraph. There's an unfortunate chapter division here between the end of 2 and the beginning of 3 because they're really all one story. And they describe events that, in my opinion, from the cleansing of the temple to Nicodemus' visit, occurred probably in the last week of Jesus' life, not very early in Jesus' ministry. But we're told at the end of 2, the last paragraph, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, against that background, chapter 3 should begin with these words, but there was a man. And the visit of righteous Nicodemus is contrasted with this superficiality and unbelief of the masses in Jerusalem. In the sixth chapter of John, we find a number of people called Jesus' disciples. They were actually following him, but their hearts were not right. Maybe they were among those who wanted a meal. And uh, to them, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. And these people were so deeply offended by these words, as Jesus knew they would be, they turned on their heels, their noses in the air, walked away, and never came back. On the surface, they seemed to be believers. But Jesus, who had no need that anyone should testify to him about what was in man, knew that they were not. We come back to the seeds. A seed has a certain life in itself, apart from its environment. And it's easy for us to conclude that these two middle kinds of soil were not producing real believers, but men like the converts on Mount Carmel and the followers of John 6. There are many other passages that we could look at, but the constraints of time don't make that possible. But let me say this. It's probably a safe thing to say that there is no doctrine of our Christian faith, even one almost universally accepted, that is immune from the possibility that some passage of Scripture fairly reasonably interpreted can be raised to refute. The Bible is not written like a doctrinal handbook. You and I wouldn't admit it to anybody else. But every once in a while we think, you know, if God had asked me before he had the Bible read, it would be different and easier to understand. But God didn't ask us, and we understand that his ways are perfect, and we're not to question them. But this means that a development of a cogent, logical understanding of the truth the Bible contains is hard work. Work that involves putting pieces together drawn from books written over hundreds of years and work hampered by the fact that in the words of Paul, the best of us still see through a glass darkly. Sometimes we wonder why God didn't prompt the authors of Scripture to write according to an outline to our liking. And the answer to this question is complicated. It's in the main unknown. But a part of the answer might be suggested by this. 
When God created the earth, he buried beneath its surface things that we consider precious. There's gold and silver and copper and iron and coal and oil and diamonds. And if we think about it for a minute, it would have been an easy thing for God, when he created the earth, to create a number of huge warehouses. One in which he put all of the gold and one in all the silver and so forth. But in the wisdom that belongs only to him, he chose not to do that. And instead, we have to search for those things that we call precious. We have to extract them from the earth. We have to process them and organize them. And only then are they fit for our use. And so it is with a study and an understanding of the scriptures to which we're called. I'd like to close by saying that to those of us who love the word, the Lord and his word, this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is much more than a sterile paragraph copied from a book on systematic theology or a lifeless line taken from one of our creeds. It's much more than a piece of the intellectual fabric of our faith or a response that we learned to one of the questions in one of the catechisms. Imagine this with me. A Christian man falls asleep. Before he falls asleep, he's troubled by many things, those having to do with his life on earth and perhaps things having to do with his relationship with God. As he falls asleep, he has a dream. But his dream is not a pleasant reverie. It's more like a nightmare. With a sense of desperation, he finds himself walking across a large open field. He doesn't know why, but something compels him on. Behind him, close behind him, are enemies snapping at his heels like wild dogs. Those enemies might be the doubts of his mind, the distractions of the world, the temptations of the flesh. Ahead of him, sensed more than seen, is a beautiful, charming place of refuge. As he rushes on, suddenly the ground beneath his feet begins to tremble, and with a loud roar, the earth separates, creating a wide, wide chasm. As the ground falls, he instinctively reaches out and grabs something that he first thinks is a rope, but later realizes is a vine of some sort. He hangs over the abyss with nothing but smoke and death far below. He's somewhere in the middle, meaning that his weight causes the vine to sag so that either way he goes is uphill and he's not a strong man. He realizes that sooner or later he's going to lose his grip and fall to his death. He calls for help, but there's no one to hear. He tries to move, but he finds the effort beyond his ability. At last, resigning himself to his fate, he relaxes his grip. But to his surprise, he doesn't fall. He looks up at his hands and discovers that he has somehow become attached to the vine. All along, he thought that he was holding the vine, but now he knows that all along, the vine has been holding him. And the vine is alive and slowly moving and carrying him in the direction that he needs to go. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus said, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The last verse of the fourth psalm is one that I have found comforting to think about and useful to read, particularly to someone about to go into the operating room. In fact, I hope that God allows me a, enough awareness of things so that when I'm lying on a bed in the hospital and the nurse is about to pull a sheet up over my face, that these words come to my mind. The last verse of Psalm 4 says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou alone, O Lord, makest me to dwell in safety. We fast forward to Psalm 139, where the psalmist said, And when I awake, I am still with thee. This is the joy, this is the peace of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the delights of becoming familiar with your word, of being able to put at least some of its pieces together, of coming to these doctrinal conclusions that speak to us of your glory, your love, your grace, and the mercy that you extend to us through Jesus. But more than that, we thank you for the fruit that these doctrines bear in our lives. We thank you for the certainty. We thank you for the joy. We thank you for the peace. Lord, we're most grateful for this opportunity to be together to consider these things that are precious to every one of us. We pray that in our various churches, our worship tomorrow will express the joy that we've been reminded of here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that brings our conference to a close. I thank you all so much for attending. We thank you for sharing this day with us. And we hope indeed to see you again here next year. You're welcome to stay around afterwards, go to the book table, fellowship with one another, just spend more time here before you leave. We'd love to not bring this day to an end and just spend more time with you. And so if that's a possibility for you, we'd love to do that. We'll see you next year. Thank you. I'm told if you try to get out the door with your name tag, a loud buzzer will go off. So uh, thank you for returning those if you can.